Hello and welcome to Season 6 of Bad Gays, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. It's been a while since we've been together like this, Ben. It has been. Uh, we got to spend a lot of time together this summer touring our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. Um, that was fun. Uh, but... Then we had to take some time to do non-bad gays related things. Yeah, what have you been up busy, to since uh, the summer? Yeah, yeah, really busy. Yeah, um, I um, I wrote and made a film uh, called Ungentle that was uh, on on show in London for the last ooh, six months or something, um, which I'm now taking around some film festivals, which um, I did with my uh, colleague Onyeka Igwe, and it's all about gay men and espionage in England in the uh, early 20th century and voiced by um, the inestimable Ben Wishaw, who was absolutely incredible. It's a very good film. I got to see it at Studio Voltaire in London, which was fun. Thank you. I've been, I've been mostly working on uh, this PhD dissertation that I told some German people I would write, and so I probably should at some <laughs> point, um, and uh, writing some articles, uh, keeping everything going uh, over at the museum, which is always a lot of work, but but really rewarding and uh, getting ready for some really exciting stuff this year, which I can't quite talk about yet because of NDAs, but um, it'll be fun when it happens and we'll definitely let you know. Um, we're also anticipating the paperback release of our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, this May, um, and we will almost certainly have some more events as soon as those details are Together, we will let all of you know. Uh, it was so nice to get to spend time with all of you, to see all of you, to meet all of you uh, last summer, and uh, we're looking forward to doing it some more this summer. Those conversations were really great, and uh, we realized that we really do have um, fans uh, that we like, which is a great feeling, and fans who <laughs> ask really important and interesting questions and questions that kept us thinking and kept us on our toes and kept us talking about different stuff every night, um, and that's really... And fans who gave us strange, uh, handmade, uh, penis-shaped handicrafts, which are great. <laughs> Shout out to the lovely people in Amsterdam who gave us two soft sculpture willies. No, Manchester. Um, one of them. Man I was in Manchester. I said Manchester, didn't I? Amsterdam. Manchester is the okay. uh, Am Amsterdam of the North. All right, so shout out to the people in Manchester um, who gave uh, Amsterdam on the mind for some reason. Shout out to the people in uh, Manchester who gave us two lovely soft sculpture willies. Um, the, one of them uh, was pink with a little face on it, and one of them was wrapped in white lace. And uh, when they first came up and, and gave them to us, um, I reached for the one that was pink with the face, and they said, no, that's Hughes. Um, and so I one now on my bookshelf. And I had it that night in my shirt pocket and uh, then was getting very strange looks at the pub and couldn't figure out why. And then I realized, <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a, a white lace willy in my shirt pocket. Yeah, that one was mine. It's uncanny. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough banter, enough banter Ben. Uh, on with the show. Uh, yeah, well, we didn't, don't have anyone to say who we talked about last week because this is the first episode of the season. But who are we talking about? Well, um, I want to start by thinking back to two episodes that we did uh, in the previous years, the one on Pete Buttigieg and the one on Andrew Cunanan, these two very different types of gay striver. So Buttigieg, we articulated in our episode, was this sort of archetypal best little boy in the world. And that phrase comes from a book by Andrew Tobias, which put forth that archetype of the young, closeted, upper class, white, gay boy, and man, who deflects from his sexuality, his one failure, his one betrayal of his class system, through achievement. Quote, the best little boy in the world never had wet dreams or masturbated. He always topped his class, honored mom and dad, deferred to elders, and excelled in sports. The best little boy in the world was the model IBM exec. End quote. One presumes the pun in he topped his class is intentional. Um, so we traced Buttigieg through his childhood in the leafy suburbs of South Bend near Notre Dame University and discussed that he always understood his sexuality as the one inner imperfection that could not be sacrificed to the screaming and bottomless pit of his ambition. How he said that he wished he could cut that sexuality out of his heart with a knife. His tours of Iraq, 
his time working for the cartoonishly evil consulting firm McKinsey, famous for fixing bread prices in Canada, advising the Sackler family on how to addict vast swaths of middle America to OxyContin, and his time as mayor of his hometown, a time celebrated by at least some police officers as the return of White's rightful rule, and during which the police murder of Eric Logan capped what The Guardian describes as, quote, eight years of Buttigieg's economic policies that have left people of color behind. Meanwhile, alleged incidences of police brutality and cover-ups has so deep distrust, end quote. After all, part of being the best little boy in the world, and a part not quite discussed by Tobias, is keeping your inferiors in place. How can you react to quite literally everything as a paranoiac defender of your social status from the one thing that might disturb it without stepping on a few people below you? Cunanan, on the other hand, is a different archetype, the best little boy in the world wannabe, trapped by accidents of birth or by a personality not quite able to keep a lid on it, 20 feet from stardom, from the kind of seemingly effortless success embodied by the Buttigieg type. The best diagnosis of the Cunanan type comes from Gary Indiana's novel Three Month Fever, about Cunanan's web of lies life, lying to friends at prep school about his birth, pretending to be a doctoral student in art history, pretending to be fabulously wealthy, selling drugs in San Diego gay bars, and his eventual murder spree across the country culminating in the murder of the fashion designer Johnny Versace on the steps of his South Beach villa. What Indiana proposes is that the specific psychopathology of Cunanan lives inside every gay man. And the key to that proposition is the opening of his novel, which is a poem by Dory Previn. Last night I found obscenities scrawled across my wall. I swear I can't repeat the filthy words that I recall. And then the most immoral, damned, insulting thing of all... As I read each line, I noticed his handwriting was identical with mine. <laughs> For Indiana, Andrew Cunanan is a gay version of the pure expression of the poisonous narcissism of American celebrity culture. He writes, quote, many of American society's most admired figures, its so-called role models, could easily qualify as sociopaths. The culture of narcissism having segued some years ago into the culture of total self-aggrandizement by whatever means present themselves. America loves a successful sociopath. True. So today we're going to talk about one of those successful sociopaths, Congressman George Santos. Yes! Amazing. It is the thesis of this episode that Santos is as likely as Buttigieg or anyone else to become the first gay president of the United States. <laughs> okay, hit me over this. He smashes the low-rent striving and wide-eyed open lunacy of the Cunanan type into the straight-laced official political world of the Buttigieg type, which is where most of the horrified official outrage about him comes from. Is he the, is he the Trump to Buttigieg's Hillary? Maybe. Um, yeah, let's see, let's see where we go with that. Is he much more of a liar than a typical politician? We'll see. A self-made man in the greatest American sense, as if Cunanan's lies had seen him elected to Congress and were then exposed as lies, and then no one particularly cared, George Santos rockets a centuries-old tradition of pathological homosexual narcissism that we've discussed for years on this show <laughs> into the era of Trump. It's bigger, it's bolder, it's brasher, it's out in the open, and he's getting away with it. So let's start our story by remembering how it all began. The 2022 midterm elections were rapidly approaching, and it seemed like polls were dropping out from under the Democrats. States and seats that should have been safe suddenly seemed in danger. People were panicking. In this broad panic, a lot of races in winnable swing districts, especially in the House of Representatives, which for our non-American listeners involves 435 separate local elections, um, those uh, seats, um, people were panicking, and, and a lot of races in winnable swing districts were overlooked. When the smoke cleared the morning after the vote, the Democrats had improbably kept control of the Senate and come unbelievably close to keeping control of the House of Representatives. And they mostly lost the House because of a wild swing to the right in the state of New York. Now, New York is a Democratic state, which is weighted so democratically because of New York City, which contributes 8.8 .8 of the city's 20-odd million inhabitants. 
Without the city, the state would be a swing state, possibly even right-leaning. Now, the New York State Democratic Party. The New York State Democratic Party is a political organization whose competence recalls the gang who couldn't shoot straight and whose corruption recalls, well, it's the New York State Democratic Party. Like, this is the organization that <laughs> brought you Tammany Hall, right? Yeah, right. Tammany Hall, right. And so they're run by a functionary put in place by now disgraced former governor and nipple-pierced sexual harasser sociopath Andrew Cuomo. Um, and they nominated for governor his former lieutenant governor, Kathy Hochul, who is a personality-free center-right functionary who secured enough internal support to bat off primary challenges, but she went into the general election profoundly weakened. She offered nothing to her left flank and was brutally attacked by her Republican opponent from the right. And so on election night, she squeaked this embarrassing victory of 52 to 47, um, which is not what a Democrat should be winning by in New York. And this was not against the kind of moderate New England Republican that sometimes wins in places like this. Her opponent was a Trump-endorsing fire breather, um, super anti-abortion. Um, turnout was not great in the city. Like People I know who lived in New York City weren't getting any information about the election that was coming up. It was all very badly handled. Um, and the party also whiffed its congressional map in the state. Uh, so first, they tried to draw this improbable gerrymander to make up for other Republican gerrymanders. And then they capitulated to this court ruling by a right-wing judge who had been put in place by Cuomo that ended up redrawing all the state's districts to be much more Republican-friendly. And so the combination of all of this, top-of-the-ticket weakness, bad districts, meant that some swing suburban districts, like New York's third, ended up being more competitive than anyone thought they would be. Mm -hmm. So in 2020, so long-serving long congressman named Tom Suozzi, who beat an unknown opponent named George Santos, 56 to 39. And Biden won the same district by nine points. And so in 2022, Santos ran again. His opponent was Robert Zimmerman, a longtime Democratic functionary. Um, Santos was given no chance. Wait, so so he'd already run in 2020? He'd already run once in 2020, yeah. So this wasn't just like a guy slipping in at the last minute without chance for anyone to... to no, 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 no. He'd run... Did due diligence on him? Wow. He ran already in 20... The New York State Democratic Party had two full election cycles to do a Google search on this man's <laughs> resume and didn't. And I think that's a really key part of this story is the fact that U.S. American institutions are so rotted mm -hmm. that this is possible. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, literally a single Google search would have ended this before it began. Or maybe not, but let's continue. So... In 2022, he runs again. He's given very little chance. Um, he's running against Robert Zimmerman, this Democratic functionary. Let's talk a little bit about the district. The district has some bits of working class Northern Queens around LaGuardia Airport. That's where Santos lives. Um, and then it also includes some incredibly wealthy suburbs in Oyster Bay, uh, near Oyster Bay, Long Island, um, like mansion territory, Hamptons mansion level territory. Not the Hamptons, those are elsewhere, but extremely, extremely wealthy areas. The average um, annual income in the district is over 100,000 US dollars. Um, now, uh, Long Island suburbs are known to be politically reactionary on issues of crime and race, but have long voted for somewhat reactionary Democrats. And on election night 2022, Santos prevailed by four points. And this was one of several upset New York wins that won the Republicans their tiny House majority. Now, Santos suddenly becomes very prominent and is celebrated as this odd type of candidate. No one can quite figure him out. On the one hand, he was fully in the bag for Donald Trump. He supported Trump. He supported Trump's conspiracy theories about the election. He attended Trump's January 6th speech that preceded the assault on the Capitol. But on the other hand, he's openly gay. He's Jewish. He's the child of Brazilian immigrants. And he used those identities in campaign material in a way that was more familiar to Democratic politicians uh, than Republican ones. So in a typical interview a few days after his election with the local New York TV channel, New York One, Santos uh, pointed to 47 of 211 Republicans who had voted in the House to protect same-sex marriage as evidence the party was doing the right thing on LGBT issues. Um, he uh, called the events of January 6th, quote, a sad and dark day in our history, end quote. But it later turned out that, or actually turned out during the campaign, that he had done an interview with Lara Trump, who's uh, Eric Trump's wife, in which he said, quote, Trump was at his full awesomeness that day, end quote. 
And uh, he was actually recorded as saying he, quote, wrote a nice check to a law firm to see if we could help some of them out. Don't want to publicize it, but I'm adamant about that, end quote. Them being the people who, like, ransacked the Capitol building. Um, This was the stuff that the Democrats were really trying to hit him with during the election. This is what the whole Democratic campaign was about, January 6th. And it fell flat. It's a few too many degrees of separation to stick with voters. And this is a night when voters roundly rejected candidates like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania or Kerry Lake in Arizona, where it was much easier to connect them directly to their support of the events. But back to New York one, because this is where we get a lot of the life story that we'll then unpack, let's say. So here we have George Santos sitting in his interview in his best little boy outfit of a blue suit, a light blue sweater, a white shirt and a red tie with a giant grin. Um, I swear to God, he is wearing a full face of makeup in this interview. The lips are glossed. It looks like contour. I mean, it looks crazy. Um, He also has, and I say this as the possessor of a gay voice, George Santos has one of the most profound cases of gay voice I have ever heard. If you haven't heard what George Santos sounds like, you need to go hear what George Santos sounds like, because I think it adds a tremendous amount to the whole (laughs) picture. And I say this as someone who loves gay voice and loves people with gay voice and possesses gay voice. But anyway, Santos says that he had uh, won because he focused on kitchen table issues and crime. So here's his first big quote. My voters commute every day to New York City and their first experience of New York City is Penn Station. And I don't know if you've been in Penn Station recently, but it's almost like the Hunger Games. You go through this commute and you feel unsafe, end quote. Now, Of course, he didn't mean the Hunger Games analogy to mean New York has horrifying levels of inequality and basically working class people in and around that city are performing themselves to death for billionaires who occupy architecturally improbable apartments in the sky. Um, But instead, just to mean that people felt unsafe. Ah, well. Um, He also said, and this is a great quote, Hugh, quote, I didn't make this campaign about me. This wasn't a self-promotion experience for me, end quote. (laughs) Never trust a gay man who tells you that he is not trying to promote himself. (laughs) This is the lesson of this episode. And the interviewer, Errol Lewis, pressured uh, Santos and said, well, listen, your constituents live in mansions in Oyster Bay. Like at one point he actually says, "Um, you're talking about kitchen table issues in Oyster Bay. Those are pretty big kitchen tables, you know. (laughs) And uh, Santos said, quote, Listen, if you can afford to move into a house like that and pay sometimes six figures in property taxes, you deserve to feel safe in your home, end quote. So apparently the little people don't Don't, deserve to feel safe in their homes. Um, So then uh, Lewis asked him what committees he wants to serve on. He said, I want to serve on financial affairs, quote, based on my 14-year backgrounds in capital markets, end quote, and also on foreign affairs based on, quote, my multicultural background as a human being. (laughs) Now, that 14-year experience to which he alluded was, he claimed on his website and in court filings, uh, graduating in a relevant field from Baruch College, which is part of the City University of New York, and then working for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, and then starting an animal rescue charity. The multicultural background to which he referred, he described to the interviewer thusly, quote, both my parents are immigrants from Brazil. My mother's parents immigrated from Europe as Holocaust survivors. My father's family are from Angola. They had migrated, he said, to the U.S. separately and met in New York, quote, a New York love affair. He said he had grown up, quote, half Jewish, half Roman Catholic and praised, quote, the survival and grit my grandparents had to survive the Holocaust, end quote. File that one away. I mean, that's a pretty definitive statement. Yes. My grandparents survived the Holocaust, quote. So. Santos was then asked how, as an openly gay member of Congress, he would deal with anti-gay legislation being proposed by Republicans, like Florida's Don't Say Gay bill that bans the discussion of gay and trans people in schools, or the kinds of anti-trans and drag ban bills being proposed all across the U.S. by genocidal Republican governors and being applauded by half-witted liberal columnists. And he said, quote, I come from New York City, he said, live and let live. And then he switched the conversation to undiscussed, quote, anti-Semitism that is practiced openly in the Democratic Party, end quote. Um, and it turned out, though, that Santos had actually actively supported the Don't Say Gay law. He wrote on Facebook in April 2022, quote, 
The left is hell-bent on creating a false narrative because they want to groom our kids. As a gay man, I unapologetically, in all caps, support this law, exclamation point. It's funny because so far, completely two-faced, clearly, lying through his teeth, clearly, but there's nothing actually that distinguishes him from almost every other politician. Like, oh, he's one thing to interview, but he actually goes, does the other thing, you know, he's just, yeah, purely opportunist. But that's part of the cause, no? Purely opportunist. And also, I think, interesting to think about um, if this is where it had ended, right? If this is just who this person was, we might be doing an episode about a kind of Pim Fortown type, right? right? How does someone get to this point of uh, supporting policies that actually endanger people like them. Exactly. And that's obviously a theme throughout this whole show of how gay men collaborate with power. What's fascinating about Santos is he is actually, he doesn't have any of the power that he's trying to collaborate with. He makes it all up. So we'll get there. It's a few days after this interview that uh, things begin to fall apart. And so on the December 19th, 2022, The New York Times published an article by political reporters Grace Ashford and Michael Gold with the headline, Who is Representative-elect George Santos? His resume may be largely fiction. Somehow, it seemed, in two election cycles of running in a swing district, Santos's claims about his resume had escaped any scrutiny, even a basic Google search. Here are some quotes from the article. Quote, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, the Wall Street firms on Mr. Santos's campaign biography, told the Times they had no record of his ever having worked there. Officials at Baruch College, which Mr. Santos said he graduated from in 2010, could find no record of anyone matching his name and date of birth graduating, end quote. New quote here. There is also little evidence that his animal rescue group, Friends of Pets United, was, as Mr. Santos claimed, a tax-exempt organization. The Internal Revenue Service could locate no record of a registered charity with that name. He lent his campaign more than $700,000 during the midterm election, has donated thousands of dollars to other candidates in the last two years, and reported a $750,000 salary and over a million dollars in dividends from his company, the DeVolder Organization. Yet the firm which has no public website or LinkedIn page, is something of a mystery. On a campaign website, Mr. Santos once described DeVolder as his family's firm that managed $80 million in assets. On his congressional financial disclosure, he described it as a capital introduction consulting company, a type of boutique firm that serves as a liaison between investment funds and deep-pocketed investors. But Mr. Santos's disclosures did not reveal any clients an omission three election law experts said could be problematic if such clients exist, end quote. So mysterious pools of money, no record of working at Citigroup, no record of working at Goldman Sachs, no relevant college degree, and the, and the, ter- and the charity doesn't exist. Okay. <laughs> and we're not even starting. We're just, getting, <laughs> we're just getting started here. So a few days later, after reporting by the Jewish Daily Forward, Santos was pressed on documentation that showed that his grandparents were not, in fact, Holocaust survivors, but Gentiles who were born in Brazil. And the one of the greatest things about this whole scandal is that um, Santos had to address these claims in a radio interview with former Congressman Anthony Weiner, <laughs> who resigned in 2011 from a neighboring district after a sexting scandal and whose inability to not send pictures of his dick his to wiener. people potentially brought down Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. <laughs> um, and so uh, Santos was asked by Anthony Weiner, who is Jewish, about this and um, about this reporting that showed that his grandparents had been born in Brazil. And he said, Quote, I want to know where they're getting these reports from, because all I see is a picture of somebody who they're alleging is either my great-grandfather or my great-great-grandfather. And he was asked directly whether his grandparents were born in Latin America or in Europe. And he said, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my understanding, end quote, they were born in Brazil, uh, not born in Brazil, they were born in Europe. Quoting the article from the foreword, quote, citing a letter sent from his campaign sent out earlier this year in which he described himself as, quote, a proud American Jew who'd been to Israel numerous times, end quote. 
The interviewer then asked, quote, you said you were a proud American Jew. How do you explain that? My heritage is Jewish, Santos replied. I've always identified as Jewish. He then added that he was, quote, raised a Catholic and always joked with friends that I'm Jewish. So then it turns out that he has no Jewish heritage, quoting the Jewish insider, quote, none of Santos's maternal ancestors suggest any closeness to Judaism. All were baptized, married, and buried according to Catholic rites and traditions. Most of them were born, lived, and died in the city of Niteroi, with a certain concentration in the Santa Rosa neighborhood from the mid-1950s. So the Holocaust story is entirely made up. I mean, in any sort of quote-unquote reasonable political system, any sort of functioning democracy with a free press, et cetera, et cetera, that should surely rule you out almost immediately of standing, of, 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 of taking, taking a seat, Charlie. <laughs> you see, the problem is that <laughs> I mentioned this extremely thin Republican majority. Um, you may remember that just to get their Speaker of the House elected, it took them a long time. Yeah. Um, and they're so worried about losing that majority and potentially losing this district in a special election that the Republicans decided to seat him um, and originally decided to give him his committee assignments. Um, so, yeah, the portrait begins to emerge of Santos as a truly pathological and compulsive liar. Here's a here's a good one. So at one point, he claimed that his mother had died on 9-11. And then Fucking people hell. found... Then people found pictures of her very much alive after <laughs> 9-11. And so he then claimed that what he meant was that she had died from cancer from the dust after surviving the attacks in her office on the South Tower. Okay. Then it turns out that not only did she never work in the South Tower, but she actually <laughs> wasn't in the United States on September 11, 2001. And then Santos's reply was, quote, I don't know where that came from, end quote. He's sort of pitching himself as like the, the, the sort of Forrest Gump of international atrocities. Honest to God, my mother's great-grandparents fled the Holocaust and went to Brazil, and then my mother came to the U.S. and died on 9-11. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, it's horrendous. Like, we're laughing. Like, it's, it's a, a truly horrendous thing to say for people who have lost their families in these events. It... Here we go. Santos, during his campaign, made a point of claiming that he was a landlord and using his like identity as a landlord to slam the various pandemic eviction protections for New Yorkers, basically saying like, these protections on eviction are making it impossible for landlords like me, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that not only did he not have a real estate empire, he had actually regularly been behind on rent and was in housing court multiple times fighting evictions and actually contemplating going on public assistance. So what kind of person pretends to be a landlord for political gain? <laughs> I mean, it was, he, he saw it as his way out. He saw a society that, that's, um, you know, skewed towards landlords and thought, if I can just pretend I'm one, fake it till you make it. So it, it turns out that one company he actually had worked for, Harbor City Camp, uh, Capital, was described by the Securities and Exchange Commission as, quote, a Ponzi scheme, um, where he had been working um, when he said he was working at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs was for the Dish Network satellite TV company, but not in the head office. He was working in the call center for $15 an hour. Um, Quoting a New York Times stories about uh, uh, based on interviews with people who knew him at this time, quote, from early on, there were incongruities between the way that Mr. Santos talked about himself and the life he led. Mr. Santos described his family's wealth and business success, even a home on Nantucket, which Mr. Maury Parker had said seemed at odds with the ordinary life the family led. You're sitting here bragging about all this money you're making, Mr. Maury Parker said. Then why is your mother a housekeeper? End quote. One of his old roommates in Queens told Gothamist, quote, Santos does not care about politics at all and just wants to be famous. He used to lie to everyone that he was working, but actually he was not. He was just home browsing the web, just sitting on the computer all day, end quote. And throughout this time, uh, he was often introducing himself not as George Santos, but as Anthony DeVolder, which is his middle name and his mother's last name. 
So think again about the Andrew Cunanan story. Here's Gary Indiana describing Cunanan, also the son of immigrants who went by Drew and pretended to be a rich Jew, and how he managed to paper over the various inconsistencies in his life story with friends. Quote, Drew swooped again into close-up somewhere you were drinking near closing time, leaned into you intimately, and struck up a long, heart-tweaking conversation in which the rueful vicissitudes of existence, the ironies and epiphanies of life in general and gay life in particular, figured rather beautifully. And you were reminded that despite the wrenching randomness of this friendship and so many other friendships, there were people in the world you cared about and who cared about you, even if these empathies were doomed to track through empty ether like so many scrambled radio signals. In this respect, Drew was no different than a lot of bar people. Easy come, easy go. There were bars for cruising and bars for conversation, but in either kind of bar, the relentless hunt for something besides conversation gave friendship an ephemeral fluidity that alcohol rendered even looser and more transient. You could know many people for years without knowing a single hard fact about their lives. A glimpse through the keyhole into their reality might be offered once or twice in a decade. The rest of what you knew was a compost of gossip and interference and whatever the person told you, end quote. Now that's pre-internet, but there's still uh, something about this quality of urban gay life, this kind of rootedlessness and restlessness, uh, something that at its best leads to fleeting if transcendent moments of connection, but which at its worst enables a kind of malevolent narcissism and pathological lying, right? Everyone knows the one queen out on the scene who's like a little nuts and always talking about her friends in Masad or her uncle who was the prince of Romania or whatever. And Andrew Cunanan is what happens when you give that queen crystal methamphetamine and firearms. And George Santos is what happens when you elect that queen to Congress. <laughs> it turned out that in addition to um, the charity not being registered with the IRS, at one point, Santos had run an online GoFundMe fundraiser, uh, raising $3,000 for a homeless veteran's dog and pocketed the money, allegedly. That's dark. To quote the comedian Leslie Jones, and quote, he didn't just steal from a service dog. He didn't just steal from a dying service dog. <laughs> he stole from a disabled homeless veteran's dying service dog. <laughs> oh my God, you evil and stupid, end quote. <laughs> Even his sexuality came under scrutiny. The New York Times reported that in 2019, um, when he was starting his first campaign for Congress as the gay Jewish Republican, he was also in divorce court in Queens, divorcing his wife. <laughs> who he married, a woman wife, who he married in Manhattan in 2012. Are there any details on like the terms of that marriage? Is that a lavender marriage? Is that an immigration marriage? We don't know so much about the terms of that marriage. It does seem uh, that he actually did live a gay life, though. I mean, people, it's not like people were saying they were surprised he was gay or something. Yeah. Um, there was uh, a drag performer in Brazil named Euler Rorard who came forward a few weeks after that and presented photos of Santos in drag as Kitara Rivace. Um, the media exploded with these claims, uh, which Santos first denied and then said he'd done drag, quote, once at a festival. <laughs> and didn't inhale. And didn't inhale, exactly. I put the wig on, but I did not inhale. Um, have you seen, on, on the inverse, have you seen the performance by uh, Meatball, the drag queen? Yes. In, as George Santos in, in as George drag. Santos going into Kitara <laughs> yeah. Rivace in the it's red so dress. With the ugly. It's really good. <laughs> Everyone should go watch it. But anyway, uh, here's an interview with Rorard, quoting an interview with Rorard that was done by the journalist Marissa Cabas on her Substack. She writes, the fact that Santos is in politics to her now is surprising because he never showed an interest. And she's particularly shocked by his right-wing politics because all of his friends in Brazil were left-leaning. Quote, he was a dreamer, and the way he figured out how to be famous was by becoming a politician. Republicans deserve someone like him. <laughs> now, wait for this. Eula says Santos was never a professional drag performer, but did it for fun. Quote, he did not have what it takes to be a professional. George <laughs> did not have the glamour for that. <laughs> but he does have what it takes to be a professional Republican. Never piss off a drag queen. <laughs> so the bigger question is, 
there are some moments when Santos is recorded on actual verifiable documents as having spent large sums of money, and we don't know where it came from, and we don't know who or what is behind it. And that's a problem, given that he's an elected official who's being embraced by his party and who has filed this week for re-election in 2024. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. That's a very gay quality. Uh, right? Never, ever, 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 ever give up on trying to get attention. <laughs> Never give up on trying to get attention. Just more. Look at me, look at me, look at me. That's why I find it so funny when people talk about gay male representation in media. Do we really need to look at ourselves any fucking more? All we do is look at ourselves. We're obsessed with it. No one has ever looked at themselves more than a gay man. But that that is actually, I guess, one of the most important and problematic questions coming out of his whole case. And which for me, I was always surprised at because, you know, there's all these stuff about him, you know, not having enough money, him getting a bit behind in his rent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then, yeah, this, these huge amounts of money that are being dropped, seemingly without scrutiny and oversight. Is that not something that's sort of flagged up in the US under election spending well, law? Yes, we'll get there. So this is probably, if anything brings him down, I think it will be this. So um, just to go back through the financial claims, and this is from the uh, website Vox, uh, during the 20. 22 cycle um, in his campaign finance documents, he claimed to have an income of $750,000, millions of dollars in assets, including an apartment in Rio worth a million dollars and a seven figure savings account. Um, that's a huge change, right? He was evicted in 2017 yeah. and in 2015, he's been taken to courts for not paying debts. His 2020 taxes report income of $5,000 with no assets. <laughs> Right. And suddenly, like, what the hell? It's been so a good Santos, few years. Santos claimed he made the money selling yachts. <laughs> but no one can quite figure out how this works. Um, there's a New York Times article that was written yesterday on the day that we record, so the 15th of March, which reported that the FBI is actually currently investigating his role in a $19 million yacht sale days before he was first elected to Congress. Quote, the sale, which has not been previously reported, is one of about a dozen leads being pursued by the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, and the Nassau County District Attorney's Office, people familiar with the investigation said, end quote. So that means that he is currently being investigated for campaign finance regulate violations by local, state, and federal <laughs> investigators. Um, that's good, right, when you get the trifecta? So prosecutors and FBI agents, uh, the article goes on, have sought in recent weeks to question the new owner of the 141-foot superyacht, Long Island auto dealer Raymond Tantillo, about the boat and his dealings with Mr. Santos, end quote. I can't wait for the HBO miniseries. I mean, and the thing is, this is the basis of the Trump thing, right? It's like, it's the people who didn't go to college but have auto dealerships. You know, it's like that kind of, that's the real donation base, right, of that of that engine. So to me, looking at it, and now I'm not a campaign finance reporter, but to me, the pattern seems clear. Um, Santos, it looks like, used his campaigns, which were based on entirely fictional resumes, to make contacts with Republican donors who could then actually help him make business deals that would get him to the degree of fame and financial success that he always thought he deserved. And so I don't know what will happen to George Santos. It's entirely possible that one of the various legal cases against him from running bad checks in Brazil to that uh, local, state, and federal trifecta on the campaign finance violations will bring him down. But I do think that he's won this round. We're laughing. He's sitting in Congress. Andrew Cunanan had the wrong record. Andrew Cunanan had the wrong racket, or maybe was born in the wrong decade. As it turns out, he didn't need to buy a gun. He didn't need to go on a cross-country shooting spree. He just needed to run for Congress under his fake identity and use the real connections he made to become the kind of person he always thought he deserved to be. America loves a successful sociopath. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, that really does help us um, make the show. It helps us... Um, take the time that we need to do it. Um, and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate. If uh, you are interested in 
joining our Patreon. Uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com. Um, there is no special podcast content for Patreon listeners. Um, nothing is locked behind paywalls. Um, we have some small rewards, but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it. Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism. Yeah, it's... Um if I say so myself, a fun read. Um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it. And uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com slash book. And now on with the show. Well, thanks for that, Ben. Uh I'm sure there's probably there's probably a second episode in this next season based on I mean, what what we've learned so far this year. I do want to see I do want to say that like we are setting up the recording of this to have less time than usual between recording and release just because of how rapidly the story is changing, but there's probably at least one thing that has dropped since we've recorded this yeah. when you're hearing it. Um because a week, is, a week is a long time in politics. A week is a very long, and a week is like decades in the George Santos story. Yeah. Here's a provocative question. Um, given his difficulties with rent, um, his, uh, his, his work in call centers, his immigration status, um, him claiming social assistance, um, his sexuality, does George Santos have the most experience of working class life in America of anyone in in the House of Representatives. It's entirely possible that he does. Uh, just to be clear, he is a U.S. citizen born in the U.S., um, and he never actually claimed public assistance that we know of. He just said that he okay. was going to. But in terms of all of that other stuff, I mean, with certain exceptions, people like... I, he, what's fa- Here's what's really fascinating to me, right? In 2018... When AOC gets elected to Congress and she's a bartender living in Queens, like that to me is a very similar person, right? Yeah. Not, okay, not a similar person with similar values and similar effects in the world, but they're both kind of young strivers, right? AOC did actually go to college, um, but is a working class person working as a bartender at the time that she at the time that she makes her run, right? Um, but other than those two, I think quite possibly, like I think he's probably up there in terms of actually having that lived experience. And one of the things that I think the Santos story really does is show us how much this politics of representation and lived experience don't actually work the ways that we want them to, right? Like this is someone who, if you add up all of the things about him that are true, right? If you, if I told you there's someone running for Congress in Queens who's a multiply evicted former renter who used to be a drag queen in Brazil and who used to work at a call center, you would probably assume he was recruited by the DSA and someone you would actually be excited about voting for. Um, Mm. But what actually throughout all of this, um, Santos is not, he's, he's this completely different being, right? He becomes, he sees a way to become what he's always wanted to be and jumps on it and grabs it. Um, and doesn't serve this kind of representative function uh, that people are expected to serve, um, which I don't think points to, I mean, I think there are many uniquely horrifying things about him, um, but I think it does also point to potential weaknesses in that model of thinking about politics and of thinking about how people take political action and why. Weaknesses or successes? Is it a success for that within the internal logic of that sort of representational politics that he can get elected as a Republican, an openly gay Republican. Yes. And I think in this case, it actually really helps because if you, it's um, one of the things about this kind of representation politics is that it is extremely easy to 
turn around to the benefit of the right, right? Because because then your your red meat for your Republican voters is all the January 6th stuff and whatever. And then you have all of these identities as a kind of defense mechanism against questions from the center or from the left. And I bet there are a lot of centrist voters in that district who thought, oh, gee, you know, normally I vote Democrat, but I have my racist fears about crime. And here's this nice person who flatters my self-conceptions, right? This nice gay kid, Jewish kid, Holocaust survivors, seems like a nice guy, you know, flatters my conceptions about myself that I would vote for someone like this. And I can do that while also being racist about crime and getting my taxes down. So they vote for him. And and here we go. Right. I mean, the only people who have ever been prime minister in the United Kingdom who haven't been white, heterosexual men are all conservatives. Yeah. And the thing is, there's I mean, there was a really fascinating feature um, in New York magazine um, about two weeks ago, uh, which was actually the thing that I read that made me want to come back to this story um, about basically Santos's current brain trust and who they are. Um, that basically um, the the story opens at a 30th birthday party for a Breitbart editor uh, in Staten Island. Um, and it turns out that uh, Santos has this new guy named Vish Burra as his quote, director of operations, who basically worked with Steve Bannon on the Hunter Biden laptop story. He's a former drug dealer from Staten Island. He did crisis communications for Congressman Matt Gates um, when he um, when Gates was accused of um, uh, interacting with underage girls. Um, and he also works for Santos's friend Gavin Wax, who wasn't at the Breitbart birthday party because he was in Hungary meeting with um, members of the Viktor Orban government. Right. So that's another question. Like, um, was he... A- Within the Republican Party, did do you think people knew about this and his background before he got elected, or do you think he just slipped in as like, oh, we'll put this guy on the ballot because he wants to wants to run? He seems it seems fine, check out, and then they then they're like, okay, now we need to keep this guy in here because we've got such a narrow majority in the House that we um that will now put a new team behind him to make sure you know that he stays and to do all his PR and stuff. I don't think it's quite either. So I think I don't think they knew who he was when he got in. Um, he filed for re-election. The Nassau County Republican Party said, if you run for re-election, we're not supporting you. We're going to recruit another candidate. We're going to try to beat you in the primary. We don't want you. However, where he has found support and resonance is among these mega types. Yeah, where I see. Even though there is absolute overlap in the effect that they will have, they're institutionally different, right? Yeah. The Nassau County Republican Party still contains a lot of like white guys in suits who have shame on some level (laughs) and like the mega people don't, and that's their brand. And so I'm quoting here from this New York magazine article about this new manager, Burra, a self-described clout Diablo has got a plan to turn Santos into the future of the mega wing of the party, end quote. So they want to push it and they want to say that basically he's been, um, he's been uh, knocked down, um, he's been, uh, treated poorly. Uh, he's been dragged through the media. Um, he's not establishment. The establishment hates him. Um, and basically the fact that, um, the fact that he's, um, so despised by the establishment, um, proves that he's actually like good for us. And they're going to like run with this and push this. Right. Yeah. And so he's actually got, ironically, because of his position, um, like an enormous amount of, um, not I wouldn't say power in the party, but his position almost has a position, is a position of power, you know, because they can't get, they know that they, uh, like Kevin McCarthy, know who's the, the speaker in the house, knows that he can't really, he doesn't have enough wiggle room to get, get rid of him, which is exactly what the MAGA heads in, in the house have done to make themselves so powerful, which is like, exactly. you need us. And so one of the first things that Barra does is he has George Santos co-sponsor a resolution to make the AR-15 the national gun. <laughs> and he comes out, it's proud to be an American, or at least I know I'm free. And um, what Barra points out is that just by heat, it wasn't even his resolution. It was, you know, Congressman red-faced our McCoy supremacy from wherever, but like, just by putting Santos's name on it, there's now a million news stories about George Santos and the AR-15. And yeah. what does that do 
to conservative voters. It makes them love him. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so he's building up, whether he gets in or out of Congress or not, he's building himself up as this kind of right wing media celebrity. Um, and that's why I say he's going to stay. And that's why I say he has chances as good as Buttigieg to be the first gay president. Because no, he's, he's going to build it, yeah. up this. Yeah. I mean, he's like, you could actually see how you could use this in a celebrity culture that is a political culture with no distinction. You could actually see. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a shameless chancer, but he's just emerged at a time where the engine of Republican politics is shameless chances. So, so he's, yeah, he's, he's perfect for it. And he, he can ride that as long as they, they will have him, you know, him being a shameless chancer is what appeals so much to a sort of populist party whose entire base is, um, or entire sort of the MAGA base is entirely built around triggering the libs. Right. I mean, I sort of wonder what he'll do because the issue is, as we, as we discussed his profile as a maybe a little bit Trumpy, but kind of business elite, child of immigrants, maybe sort of socially liberal-ish on some issue, at least the the profile to make you think he's socially liberal if you don't look at anything he's ever said or done, right? That profile fits New York Third, which is this very kind of Tony upper crust suburban district. I could imagine those Republican primary voters not being the right audience for this, but fundamentally it doesn't matter. He's famous now. Like now that he's famous, he can, as long as he builds up the audience, he can, maybe he would go to another district. Maybe, maybe Florida. Would, exactly. You could be governor of Florida. Are you kidding? Um, you know, anything where, where all of New York's strangest psychopathologies have gone to get eaten by alligators. I mean, you know, the, the, that, that all of it, um, yeah, all of it can be the basis for more notoriety and more success and more media. Um, I think I kind of know the answer to this one, but he doesn't care about what policies he, what he, I mean, he could, I was going to say he, oh, he could just easily become a Democrat. He, he couldn't become a Democrat politician because the base of the democratic party doesn't have this engine of like, fuck you, anti-establishment, trigger the libs, you know, make the headlines, AR-15 national gun sort of politics. But like, in terms of his thinking, you know, like he's got no particular ideological attachment to any of the things that he's saying. His only ideological attachment is um, to to George Santos being in the news. I'm actually not so sure that he couldn't have become a Democrat politician. Um, I mean, I think that I think that a functional Democratic Party, like a functional Republican Party, would have you know Googled his resume, um, but. The New York State Democratic Party was not functional enough to Google his resume as an opponent in a swing district. So it's entirely possible that he could have won a primary as this kind of appealing, you know, child of immigrants, gay Jewish Holocaust survivors. So I know about Trump and why he's bad and what we have to do to fix it and blah, blah, blah. Like, I think that's possible. I do think that he would have been out faster as a Democrat. Like, I, th I think that this post career um, yeah. is not as possible in the Democratic Party. Um in terms of, uh, in terms of, um, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Well, that that he's he's not attached to it. Like like the, the the politics per se is not of interest to him. The only interest to him is is the George Santos party. Yeah, I mean the the only thing that I will say is that I think this this track record in the sort of late twenty tens of like pretending to be a landlord and pretending to be super rich and whatever. Like I think that. I think that the right wing politics come from that. Like, I think it comes from this conviction that he is himself successful and that he is therefore to have the politics, politics of the successful, which is a resentment based politics against the unsuccessful. And that's the American dream. And I think that in a way it's like a, a dreaming yourself into this Horatio Alger story. Um, I mean, that's the only way that I get myself through to seeing how you pretend to be a landlord. Yeah. But he, but he doesn't believe it. I don't know what he believes. Why shouldn't he believe it? It worked for him. Hmm. I mean, he did. Like, you know, he did. So, so, so it's actually uh, in, maybe perhaps some it's, it's pathological. I think it's pathological and I think it worked. So I think there's no reason for it to ever end because All now right. he's lived the American dream. He's famous. He got the thing that Andrew Cunanan never got. Well, Andrew Cunanan got it in death, but he had to bleed out in a houseboat in Miami.
Mm. And George Santos got it in the halls of Congress. And from all of us, because here we are talking about him. Right, we of course. his name. And on that note, the reason we chose to talk about him, I guess, because, well, um, I want to be careful about how I word this, because I, I think it's one thing that's really important to note about him and is is his political role and the fact that he is one of the key figures that enables the Republican Party, in fact, encourages the Republican Party to be able to continue um, inflicting, you know, real concrete material hardship on loads and loads of people in America, um, not least trans people. So I want to be careful how I word this, but the fact that he, the fact that he doesn't believe it, if other, other, these, these aren't his politics, if they came to a situation where somehow he really trashed the Republican party in, in Congress, um, sorry, in House of Representatives, if he, if he somehow did help to bring down that majority through being excluded or, or for a special election or what have you, what are the chances of him sort of recovering his career in some way as a, some sort of ironic camp uh, gay icon? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think he's going to, I think he's now doomed to be a gay who performs for people who are not gay. Okay. Um, yeah. Like, I don't think that, I don't think the community is going to embrace him. But I mean, listen, we talked already about Meatball making him the subject of a of a drag number, right? Which is which is um, evidence of something, even if it's a kind of hate love. But like everyone is there clapping along to the image. Um, somehow. Yeah, I don't know how it would work in America, but I feel like if you're in a, a person like him in the UK and you could prove that you could laugh at yourself. Yeah, I think he can't laugh at itself. Um, and in fact, when he responds, well, just say what you think of this. So uh, at the State of the Union, uh, Santos is there and not just there in the corner. Santos is there like loving it, shaking everybody's hand and in the middle and all the pictures. And um, at one point, Mitt Romney, one of the worst people in American politics who has this bizarre reputation as having some kind of moral backbone, um, which is entirely unearned. I mean, this is someone who said that 47% of Americans pay no income tax and are therefore drains on the productive 53%. I mean, this is a really horrible human being. He was governor of my state of Massachusetts. Um, he says uh, to Romney, you shouldn't be here. You're a disgrace. And here is Santos's response. It's not the first time in history that I've been told to shut up and go to the back of the room, especially by people who come from a privileged background. And it's not going to be the last. And I'm never going to shut up and go to the back of the room. I think it's reprehensible that the senator would say such a thing to me in the demeaning way he said it. It wasn't very Mormon of him. <laughs> Check your privilege, Mitt Romney. I mean... The shamelessness. I mean, the one, <laughs> the one, the one utility that a figure like this can have is by making Mitt Romney look stupid, which is an honorable, uh, an honorable activity. So I guess extremely, extremely, extremely critical support for Comrade Santos in this one. But like, yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a shamelessness that prevents him from ever being able to be like, ha ha ha, let's see. But who knows? Maybe in five years he'll have given it all up and he'll be on Dancing with the Stars. I don't know. I know that in exactly, five years yeah. I'll know who he is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that much I know. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he um, understands implicitly. Is it um, F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald? There are no second acts in America. You know, I think, uh, I think, I think he might know it, and he's like, okay, this is my one chance. I push it as far as I possibly can. Yeah, someone else said America's only second acts, and third acts, and fourth <laughs> acts. So let's see how long he can push it. Um, I think he is as likely as Pete Buttigieg to become president of the United States. We'll see what happens. Or maybe you can put some money on that. Nah. So, Ben, um, if people, for some reason, would like to know more about George Santos than they are already del deluged with on a weekly basis, uh, what are some of the sources you, um, you used for putting together this um, uh, improbable life story? Well, this is one of these situations where it's basically all news articles. And so rather than tell you the name of 20 news articles, you can look in the show notes and find all the news articles we used and uh, just Google them. And I'm sure there's something new that's come out that we didn't even have time to get to on this episode. And here's a question that actually, for once, I'm, I'm really curious as to your uh, response to um, uh, George Santos. 
Bad gay, good gay? Bad gay. Just bad gay. Bad gay. I'm sorry. Once the 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 pro January sixth stuff and the pro Florida don't say gay stuff and saying the left wants to groom our children and collaborating with that blood libel and the running this campaign that's entirely based, even if there were no lies, running a campaign for Congress that's based on like reactionary suburban voters fear of crime in New York City, which basically means their fear of seeing a black person when they get off the subway uh, on their way to work at fucking Goldman Sachs or one of these evil fucking companies that he claimed to have worked for. Bad, 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 bad gay. And then there's this whole psychopathology on top of being a bad gay, but we talked about it. What do you think? 100% agree. Definitely not a sister out of the family. No. Disowned. This is not the Olive Garden. All right. <laughs> so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can follow the show on Twitter at Bad Gays Pod. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And uh, that's our show. See you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, what a scumbag. Bad. 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 Bad.